the Seizwem of Welsh Experience podcast. Welcome, everybody. Good evening to uh, this wonderful, this much-anticipated uh, book launch uh, of Sizwe Mbofu Walsh's new book, uh, The New Apartheid. Uh, as you can see, mine is very well-worn and read already um, from when I first got it. Uh, but this book, uh, The New Apartheid, and the subtitle is Apartheid Did Not Die, It Was Privatized. Uh, and given the events of the past uh, few weeks, I think this is a, such a timely, the launch of this book has been so timely in terms of everything that we've seen uh, take place in the country uh, in the past few weeks, the unrest, whether you call it an insurrection or, or not, um, and uh, all of the um, violence as well that we've seen, particularly in KwaZulu-Natal, uh, the Phoenix massacre and other um, acts of serious uh, violence that has taken on a racial and, and, and ethnic um, uh, tint. And so we've been coming towards today, I've been really excited for this chance to, to chat to Sizwe about the themes that he speaks about in his book, um, because he delves into a set of issues that are um, that we've been really discussing and that have been at the fringes or kind of underlying uh, much of the debate that we've been having over the past two weeks and indeed uh, over the past uh, 27 years as a country. And I like the way that he puts it in um, his conclusion, actually. So that's where I'm going to start. In the conclusion of the book, Siswe, uh, you say that apartheid, and this is on page 159, uh, you say, apartheid did not die, it was privatized. This is the single simple thesis that I've explored in this book. This intuition is not new. Apartheid's persistence is commonly lamented in public discourse. But this lament is rarely pursued in its full depth. This book is thus a detailed reckoning with a common intuition. And close quote. And I, that for me is the first thing that I want to appreciate about this book is that we so often talk about um, the persistence of apartheid spatial planning, for example, um, apartheid uh, inequality, um, racialized patterns of inequality in South Africa. And so we all have this intuition that things haven't changed as much as was expected or desired, um, but your book really does a very deep dive into that. So I firstly, let me, actually, I just realized I didn't even introduce myself. I've just been talking. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Stembi Lembete. I am here uh, in conversation with Susan Bofu Walsh about his new book, uh, The New uh, Apartheid, which has been published by Tafelberg. And um, so, Susan, please, can you just tell us about what motivated you to write this book? And um, 
explore with us your reasons for invoking apartheid in your attempt to understand the malaise that South Africa is in now. Well, uh, Stair, thanks so much. Firstly, I want to break with tradition and do one thank you at the start, and that's to thank you for giving up your time for this launch. I think you're one of the most important voices in our country right now, and I wouldn't want to be in conversation with anyone else. So thank you so much for, for doing this and being a part of this project and this launch. Uh, I, I believe this event, which has taken on a, a life of its own, which has, has just bowled me over, um, now has a nickname, which is Dogodela Squared. So, <laughs> so I'm glad to be part of Dogodela Squared. And, um, yeah, just before I, I come on to your, your question directly, also just to say, um, hoping to make this event trend on Twitter, where it's also taken on a life of its own. Um, so please use the hashtag, the new apartheid, and um, you know, hopefully we can get this uh, building on social media as well. Thank you everyone as well for being a part of this and for joining this launch. Well, it's interesting that you go to that part of the conclusion because that really is where I try to sum up what this book is intended to do and what I've hoped to achieve with it. And I've, for a long time, had a nagging sense that apartheid is not only a legacy or an echo, but has actually taken on a new life and has assumed many rebirths since 1994. But it's, it's one thing to have an intuition and it's one thing to pass a, a comment lamenting the persistence of apartheid and quite another to with all the scholarly rigor at, at one's command try to pursue that idea in its full depth. And so what I really wanted to do with this work was take something that I've often said and something that I've often heard expressed and see the extent to which, when placed under the light of full scrutiny, it holds up and it rings true. And what I do in this book is take just the, this one idea that apartheid was privatized and look at it across a range of different spheres of South African life, from law to technology to wealth to criminal punishment ultimately to advance the thesis and support the thesis that apartheid is very much alive and is not only a legacy, but is the present. And to do so in a way that resonates with a popular sentiment, but is backed up by a scholarly tradition of research, which passes tests of, of analytical scrutiny. The Thank you for, 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 for that um, introduction to your book. I'd just like to say to everyone that please, uh, will you feel free to chat um, in the chat function, um, but for any questions you have to ask, please will you put them in the Q&A function, which you can see um, at the bottom of your screen. You should be able to see that. So it would be really preferable for us if you can put your questions in the Q&A and then any comments and general chats that you, have, can, that you have in the chat function so that we will be able to pick up your questions um, 
quickly and easily because I would like to refer to your questions uh, as, as I chat to Siswe this evening. And just a reminder, the hashtag is uh, hashtag the new apartheid. Um, and, and let's get this conversation uh, trending. Um, Siswe, so actually I'm going to start pick up from where you've just left off around engaging with this topic in an academic and rigorous way. One of the things that I've really appreciated uh, reading the book, and as you can see, I've got lots of tabs and notes, and is how well referenced and notified it is. Um, and in the book, you've sort of delved into, you've delved into the archive um, and archives of law, history, economics, um, politics, sociology, both South African and international, uh, in order to be able to build up the arguments that you make. Um, and so apart from being a really timely and, and well-argued uh, comment on South Africa in the present, um, this is also a great reference text because there is so much here and resources that I didn't actually realize even exist um, that people can pick out and, and then go and look for and read further uh, for themselves. So I'd like to firstly and like to ask you about that process. How was that very intensive research process for you? Um, and what I'd also like to do is I'd like to um, pick up on a question um, that uh, Prof Madlingozi I think has asked in the chat, why uh, apartheid and not colonialism? Mm. Well, thanks so much. Um, on, on the question of the process, this links to the ambition of, of, the, of the book, which we, we referred to earlier, because what I wanted to do was take all the benefit of scholarship. And in the intervening process between my last book, Democracy and Delusion, and this book, I completed my PhD. Um, and I don't need to tell you that that has a way of training the mind in a, in a totally different way. And the rigor that I brought to the PhD excited me for a, a project that was for a broad audience, but that used the same scholarly rigor that I'd learned in the process of, of writing my PhD. And so what I really wanted to do with the process this time was take all the new things that I'd learned about scholarship and also take some of the things that I'd learned about writing for a popular audience with my first book and combine those into a work which, which had the best elements of both clear popular writing but also scholarly and analytical rigor. And the readers will be the judge but uh, that's really what I tried to do with the book and, and that was, was my aim. And, and so you're absolutely right, it goes, it goes I think there are about 494 uh, endnotes and just reading the end notes is an odyssey in itself. And you can, you can go into my reading process, which, which goes right into the heart of apartheid's economic planners, its, ideolog its ideologues, its political philosophers, through into the transition from apartheid to the constitutional era and also the present with some reflections on the future. So 
it, it's a book that tries to combine multiple archives about multiple times and temporalities. And this, this is something that I think is sorely needed right now to the extent that there's a lot of work which you know, writes the history of apartheid. There's a lot of social commentary on South Africa's current crisis. There's even some work that tries to look into the future and prognosticate. But, but doing all those things together, I think, is what's called for in this particular moment. And what I tried to do with the word apartheid and with the title, which actually pre-exists the book, I knew this book was going to be called The New Apartheid uh, before I wrote the book. Um, and I had the line, Apartheid did not die, it was privatized as the central thesis around which I wanted to write the book. And that's, that's because I think Apartheid plays such a fascinating role in, in the public psyche right now in a way that colonialism possibly doesn't. And that is that Apartheid is, is so omnipresent as to become invisible. And so we, we, we invoke apartheid to forget it in, in the present. And so I'm not sure as a country, our specific experience of apartheid, which is of course tied to colonialism, has actually been assessed in, in the depth that's required to understand where we are in the present. And I think until we disentangle the ways that apartheid has evolved in our minds since 1994, then we will be floundering to find solutions for some of the crises we confront. So that's partly why I thought that apartheid was, was a key word on which to hook this work because of the way that apartheid functions right now in South Africa's public discourse. And it's quite interesting that uh, in the Fees Must Fall moment, for example, and, and in the upheavals that uh, spread across campuses, colonialism was, and decolonization was the the term du jour. And it's interesting to me that apartheid wasn't, wasn't um, as, as, as present. And so in some ways I'm trying to resurrect that term and bring it back to the forefront of the public debate now because, because I believe it's, it's so relevant. Thanks everyone who's here. Um, and, um, and thanks for that response, Siswa. I just want to say that um, your facility, your faculty, facility, your faculty, the way in which you use language is beautiful. It's extraordinary. For those of you um, who don't know, and many people don't, I've known Siswe since he was like 13. And I, and I met Siswe at a, at a hip hop battle at a, yeah, it was a rap battle at school. And that I, for some reason, was meant to be judging. It's bizarre. Um, and you have the most incredible way with words and you play with words in this really beautiful um, way in the book, um, but also as you speak. So just as you were speaking now, you said um, apartheid is so omnipresent as to become invisible. And, and I think that, that it's so odd that we've, we don't interrogate as much as we should in everyday life uh, firstly, something that was so recent, um, but also um, that in many ways takes the colonial infrastructure and colonial policies to their logical conclusion. 
right? Um, I mean, the reason why then apartheid becomes this big uh, human rights issue after the Second World War is because it takes the logic of colonialism to, to the logics of colonialism to their most obscene um, explicit ends um, to the point where uh, it kind of offends the sensibilities of the colonial powers. Um, and, so, and so I think that that's a very good justification for focusing on that um, in this book. I want to ask you two things. Firstly, about what the book is not about, um, because I do think that there is, with such a provocative title, um, with this idea of apartheid being privatized, um, there is a lot of room for misunderstanding and for, and for misrepresentation. So can you please give us a sense of what the book isn't arguing and what the book isn't about? And I want to tie that to this idea. Uh, Simpiwe has asked a question about uh, Jacob Lamini um, saying that apartheid was an extreme form of economics. Um, so how new is the privatized apartheid? Um, so can you just speak to us a bit about that, about what this book isn't and why there is something significant or new or innovative about speaking about apartheid as privatized. Well, thank you for, for the earlier comment. And, and also just to say that for those who, you know, may disagree with some of the of the provocations in the book, what I have also tried to do um, is, is make this readable and um, try to apply some literary flair um, in order to try and turn it not just into a stolid, you know, from a stolid work of nonfiction into, into something that has artistic elements um, in addition to its, its scholarly elements. At least that was, that was the hope and the ambition. So um, hopefully you'll enjoy reading it even if, even if, you, um, even if you recoil at some of the, at some of the uh, naughty provocations. I think that's really key, Ste. And um, one thing I'm quite cautious about is that um, there's a difference between knowing about a book and reading a book. And I can feel that many people are starting to know about this work, and I'm really excited about that. But that comes with the danger that it becomes stylized and it becomes caricatured. And to be fair, with a title this provocative, um, I might even have invited that to some extent. But what I do right up front is try to define the limits of the argument that I'm making and avoid the pitfalls of making wild and radical claims that, that can't be backed up and can't be cashed out. And so I think what, what might be useful is, is just to read a very short passage where I try to explain what this book is not about and, and why I invoke the term apartheid. I also explain um, because this is not a gimmick. It's not an attempt to throw around controversy to court attention. It's, it's, it's very pointedly used and the decisions are deliberate. Um, but just on that, on that question, what I say is, what I am not saying in this book needs to be underscored. I'm not claiming that South Africa is the same as it was before 1994. None can deny the far-reaching effects of the abolition of apartheid statutes or the importance of the removal of apartheid as a state ideology. 
In themselves, these two changes have altered South Africa dramatically. To be sure, South Africa is, quote, this is a quote from Professor Ashil Mbembe, undergoing multiple and systemic transitions at different paces and rhythms. As should be clear from the title of this book, there is something new about the new apartheid. What I am claiming in this book is that the new is connected to the old. I am protesting against a binary view of South African history that unduly dramatizes the novelty of the new South African Republic. 1994 represented a change in degree, not kind. The constitutional order will not automatically vanquish the new apartheid any more than the new apartheid will overturn the constitutional order. South Africa is still in transition and the true character of the new republic and the democratic experiment on which it rests is yet to be discovered. And that's, that's how I try to limit the work and ensure that people don't think I'm saying, you know, nothing changed in 1994, conferring the vote was meaningless, the constitution should be scrapped and thrown out of the window. Um, certain things have happened, but over dramatizing what happened, I think, is the key viewpoint at which I'm taking aim in this book. Um, great, thank you. Um, and, and I thought that, and it's one of the things that I've, um, you know, highlighted in the book is those qualifications. Because also what we've done is what gets done with what we've done with apartheid is what gets done with racism, right? To treat the use of apartheid as a, the term apartheid as a description, as a slur, um, instead of a factual um, description of, of, of history or a state of being, but also instead of as an analytical framework, right? And then I think that here you use um, apartheid and how it was designed and how it um, it was uh, implemented as an analytical framework to understand what is currently happening um, in South Africa, what has changed and what hasn't changed. Um, and I want to then go to, so the book is divided into chapters um, on, uh, there's six chapters um, in the book, chapter two is there's six substantive chapters in the book, um, or five substantive chapters, and then the conclusion. Uh, chapter two is on space. Chapter three is on law. Chapter four is on wealth. Chapter five is on technology, and chapter six is on punishment. Now. Uh, so when you and I had spoken earlier, I'd said I was going to start with space, but I actually want to start with law um, to respond to some of the questions that are coming up um, in the chat and, and from everyone. And um, there's a question here from Liam uh, asking, um, over the last couple of years, many progressives have said that government has embraced a level of austerity in their measures. Uh, do you believe this is a valid critique and do you believe this contributes to the new apartheid? Um, there is a question about 
um, from an anonymous attendee, don't you think the current government has and continues to be the biggest enabler of the apartheid system? Um, there is a question here from Fanele saying, is it possible to have equality in capitalism? Considering apartheid and colonialism was a capitalism, a capitalist project. Um, and then there is a question here also um, from Monde saying, uh, are white people the colonialism and apartheid that we're grappling with? Um, appreciating that its ambassadors are no longer uh, exclusively white. Now, the reason why I want to lump all of these questions in the discussion about the law chapter in your book is because you delve in that chapter, you begin with a critique of constitutional uh, triumphalism. Um, basically this idea that the constitution, um, the new constitution fixed everything um, and that it is a perfect document uh, for, for dealing with South Africa, South Africa's challenges. You quote uh, Van Maal, who says, um, there's a danger, uh, for anyone who has the book, this is on page 58, there is a danger that law, monumental constitutionalism and human rights embody another spectacle, one that could yet again take over the South African imagination to the detriment of the ordinary, the way people actually live and more pertinently, the complexities of life. Um, and so you work around um, that critique and Firstly, beginning with um, a, a criticism of the way that justice is dealt with in the um, founding principles of the Constitution and in the Bill of Rights, um, that the idea of justice is tempered and spoken about as social justice, for example, um, but never actually dealt with as a, as, as a principle in its own. So I'd like you to, to speak a bit about that. Um, and then you delve a bit into how private law, and the way you put it is that um, private law facilitates privatized apartheid, is the actual quote. Um, and you explain how common law in its relation to property, the law of contract, have really acted to um, perpetuate uh, the the apartheid system through precedent. Um, and that extraordinary quote that you give from Justice Kichler um, on, 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 on the private realm um, and, and how it is almost uh, immune or buffered uh, from constitutional um, infringement. But what I'm getting to in this chapter is that you speak in quite a lot of detail about the ANC and the NP's different uh, blueprints for constitutional negotiations. And for anyone who's wanted to know what happened at CODESA and what informed the thinking of CODESA, um, that part of the, yeah, where are the minutes? Where are the minutes of CODESA? That part of the book and it's titled Who Won What is really phenomenal. Um, and Suswe delves into a discussion of the ANC's constitutional principles of a democratic society and the NP's constitutional rule in a participatory democracy. Those are the two titles. 
And the argument Sizwe that you make is that the NP won, that both the ANC and the NP won different um, prizes um, in the constitutional negotiations. But the NP, and I quote, won a market-oriented economy. They won an enlarged space for private enterprise. They won concessions on devolution and they won amnesty for apartheid securocrats and pensions for apartheid bureaucrats. Now, part of the argument that you make in the book as a whole, but certainly you make in this chapter, is that the economic system that we have and the foundations of the economic system that was the, the economic system whose foundations were laid during colonialism and during apartheid continues because of some of the concessions that were made um, in the transition process. And the neoliberal perspective on economics with austerity, um, with the reduction of the public uh, sector, um, that we continue to see manifest today. Can you speak in a bit more detail about that, especially in relation to the questions uh, from the audience that I asked about earlier? Mm, absolutely. Um, and thank you for engaging so so deeply with the work. It's, uh, it's so exciting and exhilarating to finally have this out there and have other people thinking through the work with me. Um, and absolutely, the, the chapter on law I think is certainly going to ruffle many, many feathers because I try to puncture this celebration of the Constitution, which casts the Constitution as the final death knell in apartheid's design. And what I argue in the book is that not only the Constitution, but South Africa's entire legal edifice is at least not yet fit to uproot the new apartheid because of how widespread and far-reaching the new apartheid is. So just a, a couple of things to say on that. Um, one is that ultimately the myth that I'm trying to puncture is that democracy is the antithesis of apartheid. And so we have somehow come to believe that so long as we turn ourselves into a democracy, somehow by some divine invisible democratic hand, we will eventually uproot apartheid through a political process which confers public power. And through that mistaken belief, we have taken our eye off so much of the private sphere that has come to actually determine and dictate what it means to live in South Africa today. And so constitutional triumphalism, which is this view that the constitution in and of itself will by osmosis create a more just society, falls victim to this, this equation between democracy and, and, and justice. But on closer inspection, I'm afraid, of the last three decades in practice, but also of the text of the Constitution. I think it's high time that we reassess how this Constitution has served us. Now, once again, 
I'm not attacking the judiciary, which I think has been one of the most impressive institutions of the last three decades, nor am I attacking the constitutional court, which should be distinguished from the constitution itself. I think the constitutional court has also been a particularly impressive institution in our democracy, and there have been incredible figures um, such as my godfather, Edwin Cameron, who I love and is uh, a gorgeous human being. However, the Constitution itself, I don't think has been scrutinized in its full depth. And, and what I argue is that if you look at the kernel of the Constitution, because obviously it's a long document with 243 provisions and you know, multiple chapters, some of which are very technical. When people speak about the Constitution, what they're really speaking about is the values of the Constitution. And the values of the Constitution can largely be traced to the preamble and the founding provisions, and to some extent, the Bill of Rights. And if you inspect those very closely, what you find is, is, a is no repudiation of apartheid. In fact, Professor Maglingozi, who, who recently asked a question, uh, and I cite him, has actually, I mean, bowled me over. H how, how can the Constitution not mention apartheid? Like, Surely, if, if that's what we're trying to uproot, we should name it. And, and, and this. You know, just one say the Namibian constitution mentions apartheid. The Namibian constitution is very clear on right. wanting to uproot apartheid because they were, you know, right. the South African one doesn't. I didn't realize the Namibian one did. What I, I look at some African constitutions, I look at the Indian constitution, the Brazilian constitution, I, I do a comparative constitutional analysis. And, and in that, I show how conservative the so-called grand language in our preamble actually is. Um, and so the question of justice, which is so missing in our society, is also missing from the, the values of the constitution. We have dignity, equality, and freedom, which are kind of founding values which you found strewn throughout the document. But when you try to find racial justice, or you try to find gender justice, which the Indian constitution speaks about explicitly, you realize that it's missing, and it's not missing by mistake. It's missing because this is a document which is the outcome of give and take. And I think that was appreciated in the 90s, but somehow over the last few decades, that true story has been replaced with this mythology that the constitution represents the apotheosis of, of a just society. And so I think while we appreciate the advances of constitutional democracy, I think it's high time that we reassess not just one or two marginal features of the constitution, or just the electoral system, or just you know whether we need provinces or not, but the very foundations of this republic and whether they are fit to uproot the edifice of the new apartheid. And I believe they're not. And so if, if one thing uh, could come from this book tomorrow, which, which, which is um, pie in the sky, but, but if, if, if I had a mag magic wand, South Africa would con convene a new constitutional convention. And we would learn the lessons, not just of apartheid, but of the failures of the last three decades and reformulate a new republic out of the old republic. And so I think this moment, hope, I hope this moment will be seen by future historians as a transitory republic between 
a truly new and more just republic and the apartheid past. And this moment was an ambiguous bridge between those two, those two worlds. But if, if all we can do is summon the imagination to say, well, nothing's better than the constitution, we can never have more justice, this is the best we can offer, then, then, we, then we limit our imagination to create something new, fresh, and even more just than what we have in this current uh, republic of stagnation. This current republic of stagnation. I'm writing that down. Um, I, I think that one of the things that's so important in that constitutional, in your discussion on the constitution, um, is that you also are very clear. Um, and one of the things that's really that's, that is really um, impressive about the book throughout is the nuance of your argumentation and the very carefully constructed, um, or the way in which your arguments are very carefully constructed um, and which strengthens them. Um, because so much in South African discourse is in extremes, right? So you either love the constitution or you hate it. Uh, you think the constitutional court justices are the best thing ever or they're the worst. Um, and, and, and your approach to this book is really to consider all sides, but to also then take a stance, right? To, to make it very clear what your position is um, on any given issue. And one of the things that you do speak about is about the limits of a constitution or the limits of law. Um, and two of the examples that you use, India and Brazil, um, despite having uh, far more radical constitutions, uh, so to speak, than South Africa does, are still facing the, you know, the problems of, of, of equality, um, of, of inequality, um, of trying to deal with the challenges of being post-colonial states. And so it's not that um, a constitution fixes anything, um, but certainly you raise the questions around the principles that are enshrined in the constitution. What do they say um, about the principles that on which South Africa, the democratic South Africa is founded? Um, and one of the very important things I think you say um, in the book, and I'm going to get to the end and then come back to, to the beginning, just because you've taken us there, is in your suggestion around a, a new constitutional assembly to discuss um, a new foundation for South Africa, um, one of the things that I think is important that you do in the book is to set out that that isn't weird. Um, that in all countries across time, um, state building or, or, or nation building or whatever is never, is never final. It's an iterative process, it's ongoing. And I think that one of the very dangerous um, myths about uh, the end of apartheid and post-apartheid South Africa is that the 1994 and then 1996 moments um, we're it, right? The end of history. Um, and now we start with a new, on a new slate with this new constitution, new set of laws, and we never need to review it again. And that's absurd. That, 
that is um, absurd in any context. Um, but I think, especially in South Africa, given the damage of uh, apartheid and colonialism before it, of course it's going to take us time to build a new country. And it's going to take several generations to do it. Um, and so having conversations about amending the constitution, you say here, Brazil has had four constitutions in the 20th century alone, and its fourth constitution has been amended 108 times. The Indian constitution has been amended 104 times since 1948. Um, the French, uh, France is on its fifth republic from 1958. And so the idea that we are constantly making how we live together as societies, and there's nothing wrong about that and mm. you are not cursing Madiba's name if you say that uh, I think is really important some of the constitutional changes that you recommend um, you recommend a bunch of changes to the constitution and one of the very important ones uh, that I'm very passionate about is uh, having a limitation on the rights of the president so unlike Sizwe, I don't mind too much. I think the best part of the constitution is the Bill of Rights. From chapter three, I think the constitution's a mess. <laughs> I think that this, on the substantive stuff of democracy, I think the constitution is a disaster um, because there wasn't a lot of thinking about the mechanics of democracy and how that would work. Um, and so our president, has um, former Deputy Chief Justice Museneke used to call it an imperial presidency, where the powers that the president has are extraordinary. Um, uh, um, president Erdogan of, of, of Turkey, uh, his referendum that you know generated all sorts of conflict a few years ago was to get the kinds of powers that the South African president has in the constitution. It's absurd. So um, I completely agree with you on, on changing, you know, having a conversation on the powers of the president, on the structure of the legislature, and um, on the nine provinces and the tiers of government. Can you talk a bit um, about the structure of the nine provinces and how you think that has reinforced um, the apartheid lines and especially uh, the Bantu stands? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the first thing um, to say on on your observation about th the dynamism of of constitutional democracy is that what we've somehow done is created this end of history narrative in 1994, where anything that comes after is simply in the afterglow of of this miracle. And so when you do that, you 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 make it heretical to review whether the compromises of the 1990s are fit for 2021. And you actually shut down the, the space for creative imagination to get us out of these crises. And one of the, one of the fascinating quotes that, that guided me in this conclusion came from economist Minush Shafiq, who says that sometimes to solve an intractable problem, you need to make it bigger rather than smaller. And so I feel like in South Africa, 
because we refuse to make the problem bigger and look at the constitution and the way we structure the entire thing, we are stuck in trying to figure out how do we fix education and, and how do we fix healthcare when if we make it bigger, then we actually realize, oh, if, if we fix this, that might unlock a whole new future. And so that's why I think the time has come certainly for, for our generation, because I'm afraid I've given up on, 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 on the, the generation that currently holds power to, to summon the courage to say, some of this just doesn't work and it needs to be swept away. And some of it's really good and we can preserve it and make it better. And, and, and how do we do that? Because ultimately we're gonna inherit the Republic that, that we create. And so I think that's, that's fundamentally important in just recognizing why constitutional amendment, even a new Republic is not some crazy idea. It's actually what, what has to happen in order for, for, this, for this democracy to, to survive in my view. Um, so so that's, that's one dimension of, of what I think it's important to, to hold on to. What I then do in the conclusion is, is say, on the one hand, this is necessary, but it's not sufficient, um, as you mentioned, because even if we do remake the Republic, there's still the whole private sphere that, that we need to tackle simultaneously. But when it comes to the public sphere and remaking the, the Republic, the, I couldn't agree more. Well, it looks like the whole constitution's out because I say the, the founding provisions and you say so. Let's just start from scratch. <laughs> um, but certainly when you look at, you know, whether it's cooperative governance, whether it's parliament, whether it's the presidency, whether it's, whether it's local government, these, these weird chapter nine institutions, like with a public protector, is it an ombud? Is it an anti-corruption? The, the, the Human Rights Commission, like just, is this a racial justice institution or is it some wishy-washy thing that, where, where are the constitutional um, organizations which deal with gender injustice and racial injustice really, where, where people can go to say like, I've been a victim of racism, apartheid-style racism, and I need redress. It, it just, where is it? It's not there enough for me. Um, and so those institutions, so I'm going chapter by chapter, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, you know, public administration, police services and all of that, traditional leadership, uh, finance, and even these addition, weird additional provisions. Let's go to the schedules, the you know, the national anthem, the national flag, the provinces, uh, those weird transitional arrangements in Schedule Seven B or whatever. Um, have we really looked at that and, and thought like this is really what we need to take us into a new era? No, and and imagine our, our greatest jurists and our greatest lawyers and our greatest thinkers coming together again to say, okay, well, that didn't work. Um, we can salvage quite a lot from, from this uh, noble failed experiment. How do we redo this? Um, and if we could do it in the 90s under harder conditions, then what's stopping us from doing it now when we realize that this experiment is, is going to collapse unless we 
unless we really reinvent it. And we, and we fought for the right to experiment and to reinvent. And um, I mean, I broadly have an issue with, with uh, politics and political science at the moment that we're still using now our idea of, uh, of representative democracy uh, is still based in, in, in the thinking of the 18th century, right? The 18th and the 19th century. Um, or political parties, you know, can we envision a different structure, a different operation uh, for political parties? And I think that um, certainly globally, I think democracies all over the world at the moment are being challenged uh, to think differently about the structures that we have because they're no longer fit for purpose. Um, and, and, and I think that we can see that very acutely in, in South Africa. Um, I, would like you to dot there's, there's a lot of there's a recurring this question around um, the current government so the the ruling um, or the governing ANC I much prefer that terminology um, than the idea of being ruled uh, but but the governing ANC um, the the new elites, um, economic elites, political elites who are black, right? So how um, the maintenance of the new apartheid is not uh, the preserve of whiteness, um, that it's been deracialized. Um, and so I'd like you to speak about a bit about this and the role of power and the changing, um, you, you quote Foucault around power as relational. Um, and this idea of of how, although there's been a, a shift in who holds power, mm. uh, the exercise of that power um, is still for the ends of a racially um, segregated society and is still for the ends of maintaining white privilege and wealth. I love that distinction between who holds power and who exercises it. Um, I might have to keep that for the second edition. Um, absolutely. And this is something that's new about the new apartheid um, because the question of black complicity in the new apartheid, I think, is, is one with which we have to grapple quite deeply. And it's one which complicates the picture uh, significantly because gone are the days of, of clear, unambiguous moral choices. And gone are the days when we can distinguish clearly between forces for liberation and forces for oppression. All too often now in the new apartheid, they exist within the same organizations or the same people. And, and so where they were split before, they have, they have become unified now. And, and so we support a state which on the one hand is supposed to be an instrument for liberation, but on the other hand is continuously an instrument for oppression. And so we have developed these very ambiguous feelings towards both capital and uh, the liberation movement, and in, indeed how those two have merged. And I dare say have merged and have apotheosized in the figure of our current president, who is both a billionaire and a liberation figure and in many ways represents the new apartheid in its full complexity 
and in its full ambiguity. And so I think what, what is crucial is, is to appreciate that the, the government which happens to be legitimized by the votes of a majority black country is nonetheless capable through commission and omission of perpetuating apartheid. And this is why I provocatively suggest that 1994 represented the abolition of the Bantustans, but the Bantustanization of the central government. So instead of having multiple Bantustans to administer and placate black anger and deliver basic services, we just created one central Bantustan, which administers services um, and isn't doing a great job even of that, which polices black anger, which placates um, any, any dissent under the pretext of a constitutional democracy, but is ultimately performing an administrative role. And it's, it's I mean, it's, it's the completion of the Bantustan project because that was, that was the whole idea. If you devolve nominal power and you put that in black hands, then you can avoid the critique of apartheid. And so that's what we've done. Nobody even talks about apartheid anymore because power has been devolved. Whereas other more important or equally important forms of power have become privatized and delinked from constitutional accountability. Um, definitely. And and you you write on um, the support on that Bantustanization of, of, of the of the national um, state, and you talk about how um, as the 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 liberate as liberation politics was nationalized within the, the central um, government by the state, um, it it assumed apartheid's debts. And the way that you say that you phrase it is wittingly or unwittingly, the ANC assumed sole and simultaneous financial responsibility for apartheid's failures and its own extravagant promises. Each was a tall political order and it failed at achieving both. And in many ways, um, so the ANC has had many dramatic um, and has made many dramatic errors and there's many failures that we, um, that we can list. Um, and in its own behavior and actions over the past uh, 27 years or 30 years, if you count it from 1990. Um, but for me, one of the biggest was the kind of God complex of thinking that the ANC on its own would be able to both redress and fix the errors of apartheid. So then the ANC didn't need to fight for the national party or for white people in general to actually do the redress because there was this idea that the ANC could do it itself. Um, 
and also to reconstruct a new society um, or to construct a new society and to fulfill all of these promises. And we're almost living through the consequences of the ANC's hubris in that way, right? Um, of, of not wanting to hold accountable those people that should have held accountable, it should have been held accountable because the ANC thought it could fix everything on its own. Um, I want us to touch, I know we've, 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 we're at the one hour point, we're going to stretch it a little bit uh, for everyone who wants to stay on, stay on, um, but we do have a hard stop at 7.30. Um, I want to delve into the chapter on space. Uh, Belinda, who's a geographer, um, has is especially interested in your take on space. Mm -hmm. And um, when I first got the book, when I first found out that Sisbo was writing this book and the title of the book, I immediately thought of an article that and the idea of um, apartheid did not die was privatized. I immediately thought of the New York Times article that I read a few years ago um, about uh the displacement of black people from san francisco and oakland um by uh big tech firms and basically the the people who are the cleaners and um the you know receptionists and ground staff at google at facebook now live and who used to live very close to silicon valley um now have been pushed out uh, of those play of 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 San Francisco, of Oakland, of the other areas and the other uh, places in the Bay Area, have been pushed out because of price and market forces, and now have to live two, three, four hours away from work, and commute on buses um, at horrible hours uh, in order to make it to work. And I remember reading that article and thinking, oh my God, this is the Group Areas Act. I mean, this is the effect of the Group Areas Act. This is apartheid spatial planning without the Group Areas Act. It's, mark, it's market forces creating um, apartheid, basically. And, and you write what you write in the book around space, especially urban space, uh, reinforces that. Uh, you um, I made me think about that uh, in page forty-five. You talk about how um, Johannesburg has grown two urban centers: one black majority center in Johannesburg, Bromfontein, and another white majority center in Santon. And so, in even though we have gotten rid of the Group Areas Act, uh, apartheid spatial planning is proven to be incredibly resilient and maintained uh, through uh, through the market. Um, can you speak a little bit about that, um, both uh, in the urban context, but then also in the rural context, which is really important? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, in the book, I try to develop this idea that for apartheid to be privatized, it had to be marketized. And so what I say is that apartheid is no longer policed uh, by prose, it's policed by price. And so what happens ultimately is, is that a price is a barrier. It's, it's a barrier to be able to access a good or a service. And what happens when you overlay a market logic on top of a society which is built on apartheid historical pathways is that 
you look like you're allowing freedom to reign because you can't see the strings you know that are actually that are actually pulling the society in a certain direction and so the decision to leave things to the free market actually means leaving them to apartheid um, and so and so what's fascinating to me is is how prices operate now and two examples one fees must fall another the unrest in retail outlets and malls and you can effectively trace about date statutes now to financial barriers so what we have is the replacement of laws with fees and the rebellions that we've seen in this era are to do with fees but they're not just to do with affordability they're, they're to do with the way that market logics reinforce racial prohibitions in many ways and so it's all well and good to talk about some market out there in in the ether but the way the market works in south africa is built on pathways which which are antithetical to to freedom in many ways however what markets do in in liberalizing you know these state edicts is that they have allowed on the margins a uh, um a deracialization of of privilege so so we have deracialized privilege to some extent partially but we have not deracialized oppression and this is the mistake that people constantly make in south africa is they think that because black people can now go to universities that somehow resolves the problem that everyone who's in a township is black so deracializing privilege does not mean uh that you've deracialized oppression and and so when we look at that in the context of space what we see is that this logic has played out almost perfectly so if you take an aerial photo which is what i do in the book in the various maps and you map the racial composition of neighborhoods in urban space in south africa onto cities what you see is a horrifying picture of intensely segregated cities there's a colored zone there's an indian zone there's a black zone and there's a white zone uh decades and decades later now what fools us uh those of us who who live or work or move in deracialized spaces is that in between these zones there are these little narrow areas of 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 integration and so we think that that represents progress in south africa because what we've done now is we we've created segregation but had a, a little narrow layer of of desegregation on the outskirts of the segregation but quite frankly we have done nothing virtually nothing to dent apartheid spatial logics in in urban centers and that's that just struck me i mean on the one hand it struck me but on the one hand i knew it deep down um and and the the problem is that there's no signage that there's nothing to say like you are now going into an area where you won't see white people or you are now in an indian area or a colored area but we when we move or we drive we feel we feel that intuitively 
but we 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 somehow think that it will automatically end um, by some by some uh, unspecified constitutional logic. So again, it's a question of taking a step back and appreciating how little has actually changed in the urban landscape in order not just to you know lament but to realize how big the task is and how much imagination is still required to even make a dent on the spatial logics and the, the just in closing on this the thing that wrong foots one is that nobody's behind this logic anymore it's developed a self-replicating capacity and I think that was ultimately what the NP negotiators and apartheid capital banked on was that we don't need an agency to drive this logic. This logic will work on its own. And so there's, there's no one to say, like, why are you still segregating the city? Uh, it just has a momentum that is so, so, so fast that, that it will self-perpetuate and may even accelerate if, if it isn't uprooted very deliberately. Completely, and I, I felt the segregation um, and the effectiveness of spatial segregation in the two or three days um, of the, the very hectic um, days of, of unrest in Joburg. And I live in Parkhurst and uh, my family's in, in Soweto and having been speaking, been on the phone the whole day about, you know, what was going on in Jablani and 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 other parts of, of Soweto and, and, you know, being really worried um, about my grandpa and aunts and uncles. And then walking my dogs at seven o'clock at night in Parkhurst and perfectly still, mm. like not, you would not have even imagined that the country was, you know, that not even 20 kilometers away, the country is literally burning. Um, and that effect, and it was such an eerie realization around the effectiveness of apartheid spatial planning. And I actually think it's one of the reasons why we haven't had revolution. Because to have revolution, you need a place to congregate. You sort of think of Tahrir Square, um, you think even if in you know the Occupy Wall Street movement in New York, like the bastion, you know, bastion of capitalism, um, people had a place to congregate and and therefore um, to to challenge the state. In South Africa, it's so difficult to congregate. So that's why we can have 2.5 uh, protests a day in this country. Um, and in Johannesburg, you or in the broader Gauteng area, you can have protests about the same issue, about electricity. In Alex, in Togoza, in uh, Protea, in Katlehong, and those people are so, the people who are protesting about exactly the same issue are so dispersed from each other that it's physically impossible to aggregate that struggle in order to mount a real challenge to the state. Um, and you'll, I'm sure, will know from even from organizing for Fees Must Fall, how difficult it actually is to move that number of people to the places that they need to be just because of all the barriers of space and transport in this country. 
absolutely and 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 i think we multiply that when we talk about uh small town south africa rural south africa semi semi semi-urban south africa and we we see 20 million people living in the former bantustans uh which are which are preserved almost to perfection in in their outer boundaries Ezlalin in the eastern cape which is the area with which i'm most familiar it, it's it's soul destroying you know to see to see people who have been forcibly removed even in rural areas to to even less um you know livable rural areas who are just far enough away from a small town in order to be a reservoir of labor but so far that they can't access the town for basic needs and necessities and are essentially still living and corralled into into these apartheid designed locations and and so whether we look at it from the rural urban perspective the sm- and then you you go to the small town by the way from the rural village and then there are hierarchies within the small town so you know there will be a black section of the small town etc and so in the same way as as you know sometimes like those babushka dolls like each layer of space is segregated and so even even in the areas say in urban south africa where 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 there is racial integration so for example melville um is is one of the most integrated uh zones in south africa or take a workplace which is relatively uh integrated there will still be racial hierarchies within those zones so what you've done is you've just brought people closer together but you've preserved the hierarchy as you squeeze them closer and closer together and so we can't prematurely celebrate that we've deracialized these spaces what we've done is is we've opened the gates but we haven't dis, uh, deconstructed the hierarchies within those gates and and so when we look at space when we look at apartment blocks when we look at office complexes what we see is an appearance of integration but still actually when you look deeper hierarchies which conform to apartheid binaries um i uh want to move pick up on question it's it's being um it's being raised in 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 a number of of ways um by different people but around how your book engages with capitalism and global capitalism um and i asked this one of my favorite i mean guys i really i really went in but one of my favorite chapters here is the chapter on technology because basically in that chapter um says where looks at um a an international phenomenon right about how um the the technology that we have digital technology of algorithms um and we see this play out on social media um every day is 
perpetuating uh, racist uh, hierarchies um, in 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 all of our societies. Um, and Siswe applies um, that analysis uh, to South Africa and sort of as another layer of uh, the new apartheid and of perpetuating. So, you know, if it wasn't bad enough that we lived through actual apartheid, um, our virtual world um, as designed uh, by international corporations creates apartheid, I think, whichever country you're in, um, but then it exacerbates uh, the new apartheid that we live in now. Can you talk a bit more about that? Mm, absolutely. And and this, this I think, I'm really excited about, about this section of the book, as you say, because I'm trying to, to mediate a global debate, but also in a very South African specific context. And I, I think it's really high time that we, we have this debate about about how technological multinationals um, are, are actually perpetuating the new apartheid in South Africa in very crucial ways. Um, but firstly, just to say that I think the idea of an algorithm is, is a really useful way to think of the new apartheid because an algorithm is, is, is a recipe which is designed to run on its own once one agent has created it kind of like a machine works um, for, for physical work, an algorithm works for mental work. And so if we think of apartheid as an algorithm, as opposed to just an ideology, then we start to realize that it doesn't require agency in order to self-perpetuate. And so apartheid has moved from an ideology to an algorithm in South Africa at the moment and it's the algorithm that runs in the background of our society and no one's at the at the at the keyboard as it were um, and so on the one hand I think apartheid is a technology that is a social technology at the moment in our country but then in the technological sphere in the digital sphere one of the one of the profound things that that stuck out for me in reading about this book is that our democratic transition coincides almost perfectly with the rise of personal computing and the internet age. And so another thing that's new about the new apartheid is that we have to contend with this more powerful digital sphere, which is influencing our lives in addition to the, to the physical sphere. And in fact, the digital sphere is even more efficient at social categorization. Some of the social categorization that we see on social media, some of the disinformation that we see on social media would make for wood blush. And and would, would make the you know the bureaus that were set up to categorize people in apartheid recoil in fear. And so what happens when you add a technology of social categorization that knows your every psychological impulse, your every desire, every fear, um, and and everything you've ever searched, and you impose that onto a society which is racially coded and geographically segregated. Well, what you get is an echo chamber, you know, turbocharged. And so, the digital sphere is now reinforcing the segregation of the physical sphere and vice versa. And so we have created 
uh, a digitized algorithm which is is designed to work at odds with the goal of uprooting the new apartheid. Yep. Um, and one of the things I really enjoyed about the way in which you began that chapter is that you, you speak very early on on the Immorality Act, um, as you speak about classification and surveillance. Um, and, you know, my parents' friends who were in interracial relationships and had, there were specific policemen who were in the unit that dealt with the Immorality Act and they would sit and listen outside your door or like if you lived in the house they'd be outside your window uh, to listen in on whether you were shagging or not to catch you in the moment. Um, I mean they wish they had Facebook right um, because Facebook and Twitter, Instagram, um, you know your iPhone knows who you're shagging when, even before you, you even know that you're going to, you know? And so, um, <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, and so I just like to finally um, just end off with, there's been a question uh, here about whether or not, so, so two things, whether you're going to work, um, there's a question here from your mum, and so I do need to ask it um, about uh, uh, looking at further issues of the new apartheid after the book, like in education and healthcare, uh, etc. Um, but then also, you know, in the looking big, are we not missing things like we need a professional civil service? Damn it! Um, like it's the thing that I kept on thinking with the with the question on land, right? Um, that so much of what's gone wrong with land reform is just pure incompetence. Mm. Um, and so, you know, how do we fit in those kinds of conversations into this bigger picture? Um, there's been a question here about banks and financing, for example. You know, how do we fit those things um, into the bigger picture um, that you discuss in the book? Is there space to to, to deal with those kind of immediate challenges. Um, and how do we get a different political party to win the election? Well, um, <laughs> if everyone on this call can just uh, crowdsource 100 million rands, then, then we could create an alternative. But, but till then, um, we live in the new apartheid, so. Um, well, let me, let me come on to the other aspects. Um, hi, Mom. And thank you so much for, for being this book's first editor. And on the question of other aspects of the new apartheid, I think this is something that I grappled with a lot, which was, firstly, this needs to be readable. It needs to be in a certain size. And there are ultimately many other dimensions that could be tackled. And, and I'm calling on other scholars, other writers, other thinkers to, you know, use and, and not use and throw away parts of what I'm saying and, and think, oh, that's interesting um, and really build on this frame because I think it could be a potentially fruitful and productive frame going forward. And, and so I, I hardly look at education and, and you could think about ways that the new apartheid works there. I hardly look at healthcare. I hardly look at governance itself. And so there are many other dimensions in which we could think of the new apartheid. And I've just tried to pick the five that I'm most 
uh, excited about and that I think most represent the concept, but many others might well do so. And many others might well challenge the frame and, and bring new dimensions to the frame. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think what, you're, what you say is right, that we shouldn't lose sight of very easy, quick wins that, that could you know, take us very far. You know, professionalizing the civil service is is certainly one of them, um, and and I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that those those should be abandoned. Um, I think it's a question of realizing that we need to do multiple things simultaneously, and and so we're constantly on the lookout for the quick fix, the one key we can turn to 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 overturn the new apartheid, and the new apartheid is so omnipresent that if we professionalize the civil service that will be important obviously but what we may just get is a more efficient government reinforcing patterns of the new apartheid and so but also if we just look at the constitutional design and we don't have a professional civil service then then we just end up in the same same problem so how do we activate a simultaneous and that's really the definition of revolution. It's, it's about the simultaneity of the change. It's not just about the change itself. It's about social, political, and economic simultaneous change. And so it's about coordinating change as much as, as, much as imagining what changes need to happen. What, what we need and what we somehow need to summon, and writers, you know, academics, governors, jurists, everyone, we need to summon summon the imagination to coordinate this effort. Um, and I think it's starting, for some reason, maybe it's just the recency of, of the unrest, but I feel like people are, are ready. People are ready for something different. Like people are realizing this is not as sustainable as we thought it was. And maybe that lays the ground for some interesting thinking at the very least um, in defining the problem at the very least. Um, so yes, um, I realize I could go on for hours, but I know we have about five minutes left, so. Yeah, thank you so much. That was amazing. I could talk to you for hours. Um, we must have lunch, so I can talk to you for hours about all of this. Um, and yeah, thank you so much to you and to Tafelberg for inviting me to have this conversation with you. Thank you to everybody who joined in the conversation. The, the chat box is lit um, and it's wonderful. And um, I really encourage you all to get a copy of the New Apartheid and just delve into it. Uh, and thank you for giving us a language to talk about this stuff. Handing over to you. Thanks, thanks so much. Uh, once again, just to thank you, uh, Steph, for steering this conversation in, in the way that only you can and for lending your credibility to this project. I really appreciate it. So thank you so much for, for this. And please, everyone in the chat, on Twitter, uh, show, your, show your appreciation to, to Steph. And we, and we await your book, which I believe is, is in the works. So this, I'm merely laying the ground for that, for that <laughs> masterwork. So thanks so much, uh, Steh. Uh, just a few thank yous to, to close out. Firstly, to say that there is a long acknowledgement section, so I won't be able to get to everyone, but, but please do check the acknowledgements if you're interested in all the people who helped to contribute to this work. But for tonight's purposes, to thank Exclusive Books, 
to thank uh, Saray Smith for putting this together. Also to thank the people uh, at Tafelberg, my publisher, Erika Helene, uh, my editor, uh, Russell Martin, and proofreader, um, Nazli, and uh, also to thank my parents, my mother and my father, um, who both contributed to this work in key ways. Uh, the neo-apartheid idea was uh, something I heard from my father for the first time. And as I said, my mother was this book's first editor. So uh, much love to both of them and thank you to both of them for the role they've played. My parents-in-law, um, Fuad and Memuna Hendricks, uh, my godfather, Edwin Cameron, my incredible, adoring life partner and wife, Sumeya, who I've made promises in the book for various uh, desserts, outings, dates, and uh, periods of extended quality time. I reiterate those promises here for the world to see and know. Um, my siblings, um, one person I really want to mention is Uncle Imtiaz Jetham, if he's still on this, who bought 35 copies of this book over the weekend uh, to support the project. Thank you very much. Uh, Kanita Hunter and Advocate Tembega Ngukaitobi for providing shouts for the book. And to all of you who've attended and everyone who has supported this work, everyone who's tweeted on social media, hashtag the new apartheid, um, I really feel the support for this work and it's something I've never experienced before. And it's, uh, it's, it's a really profound experience to feel the support from so many different people. So please do buy the book, please do support the project and let's take uh, the new apartheid book um, as far as it can go. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, where lots of people are asking for a song out of this. So you wow. need to drop something, um, okay. a whole album. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much, everybody. Uh, have a great evening. Buy the book, talk about it, share it. Um, it's really hugely important, one of the most important books uh, published in recent times. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Good night. The Seaswear Mall for Welsh Experience, Experience Podcast. Podcast. Aye, 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 aye. aye.